Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to join us by uh, follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. Ray and I and our distinguished guests will do our uh, best effort to, to answer your questions live. Uh, we've had over 180 extraordinary guests, so please check out our podcast on iTunes and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel on Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, uh, Harvard Business Review, Disrupting Digital, Bis Disrupting Digital Business bestseller, CEO and founder of Constellation Research, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, ZDNet, and really, truly one of the best followers on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray. Hey, everybody. And I'm excited here to be with my co-host, Bala Afshar. He is one of the top CIO, CMO influencers in the world, and more importantly, the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce. And lots of folks follow him on Twitter for his awesome stats, quotes, and of course, you're seeing some great insights all the time. But that's not about us. What's more important is our next guest, one of the top thinkers in the world. Tell us, who do we have? Ray, I got dressed up for our first guest. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> We are honored to have Nilofar Merchant. Um, she's a master at turning seeming wild ideas uh, into new realities and showing the rest of us how we can also do the same. She has done so through her books, uh, her top-ranked TED Talk, and her accomplishments as an executive at Fortune 500 companies and startups. Nilofar was awarded the Future Thinker Award from Thinkers 50, which ranks the world's leading business thinkers, and named her the number one person, the number one person most likely to influence the future of management in both theory and practice. Think about the combination of that. Nilofar began her career a long time ago. I'm not going to mention how long. <laughs> but starting as an administrative assistant, and then quickly a division leader, a CEO, a board member of a NASDAQ-traded company. And all along, she gathered the moniker as the Jane Bond of innovation. 008 <laughs> along the way for her ability to guide organizations through impossible odds. She's personally launched more than 100 products, listen to this, netting 18 billion, that's with a B, in sales for Fortune 250 companies and many others. Uh, many, Fortune 250 companies and many other companies, including startups, have turned to Mulefair for guidance on new product launches, entering new markets, defending against competitors, and optimizing revenue. She's the author of two previous books on organizations and how they can better employ new ideas. Merchant's latest, The Power of Onlyness, which where Ray and I are really looking forward to learning from, Make Your Wild Ideas Mighty Enough to Dent the World, shares her insight expertise and reveals how you can uh, connect your ideas to the world around us. CNBC called her an influencer. Another extraordinary follow on Twitter at Nilofar, N-I-L-O-F-E-R. Welcome, Nilofar, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Paula. That's the longest bio I think anyone's ever given me, but thank you. <laughs> You've done too much for a 20-minute segment. And I managed to even cover up that little gray hair on a regular basis to show for it. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. Hey, Nilifer, this is cool. I mean, you've published this new book, The Power of Onlyness. You talk dent by dent, um, and let's go a little bit deep on that. But why has it been a great source of power today, more than ever before? What is this onlyness concept? How do people get their arms around this? So you guys might remember, both Vala and Ray were really active in the same space as me when I coined this term, onlyness. And I was trying to capture Everyone was talking about platforms and how exciting the technology was. And I was like, whoa, 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 over here, it means that ideas born of that spot each of us stand in, and only we stand in, can now through connectedness actually scale and dent the world. And so onlyness was that economic shift that I was trying to point to that allows really original yep. ideas to start to enter the marketplace in a brand new way. That's amazing. In your book, you said that spot in the world only you stand in a function of your distinct history and experience, vision, and hope. And you said that today, because of the internet, because of social networking, an individual uh, doesn't need to rely on status and power to have a voice. Um, and, and, and certainly, uh, you know, all of us have taken advantage of that, and you more so than anyone <laughs> that we know in terms of sharing your wisdom with, with others. In your book, in your TED Talk, in your work as a Silicon Valley innovation expert, 
for companies like Apple. Uh, you've studied how ideas originate and spread. So uh, for your new book, what did you discover about why some people can make an impact with their ideas and why some can't? So this is the funny thing. So I, I had coined that term back in 2011, 2012, but I didn't, and, and it was the reason why I got named that feature thinker award winner. But I didn't answer the real question that most of us would have, which is how, right? And so um, the last four or five years has been a journey of really exploring what that is. And so I went and started qualitatively researching the people who were actually making a dent despite having status and power. And I kept expecting them to say something like, well, I'm, I had built a bigger brand or I had more confidence. And actually that turned out not to be the case. And, and this turns out to be incredibly instructive. So for those of us that remember the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this turns out to be really useful. So at the bottom are sort of uh, the basic things that people need, food, shelter stuff. At the very top, the top two levels are self-actualization, self-expression. So basically your ideas and your ability to kind of get those ideas out in the world. The thing in the middle turns out to be the gateway. And unless you actually understand how to belong to the world, so you have a group of people who have your back, you actually can't do the higher level stuff of expression and advocacy for your ideas. And this turns out to be really important because if 60 or so percent of us, and that's what the research shows, don't belong to a group, so we're not part of the dominant narrative culture, then we can easily kind of have to fit in to the places in which we work and stuff and not be able to advocate for our ideas. And so the insight I finally got was, the reason we don't um, push for the ideas that we care for isn't because we don't care and isn't because we don't want to, we don't give up on ourselves unless we don't already belong to a group. And this turns out to be really useful in the modern times when you can find the other people like you. So it changes the instruction set, it changes the prescription. So instead of saying, crush it, or have more confidence or more grit, or just do it as Nike would say, Instead, the instruction is, or the guidance would be, figure out how to find your people. And that's why two-thirds of the Onlyness book is really about that, about how do you find and build the relationships, which are so important for us to be able to scale ideas. So you're basically talking about finding your tribe, using them as a way to augment uh, what's happening and amplify um, an idea so it actually bubbles up. Right, and you, you have some examples of how an audience can use their onlyness to make an impact with those ideas in everyday situations. I mean, it's not just big ideas, it's even things from home or work or you know, with your kids. So what's, what's a way to do that? What are some good examples? Well, there was a, a young man in the book I wrote about in chapter four called Alex Hillman, named Alex Hillman, and he's a young guy that when I pick him up in the story, he's about 23, 24 years old web developer living in Philadelphia and feeling deeply alone. And the, the vignette he told me was that he used to go home almost every night and eat takeout hunched over his computer and, uh, and thought all the tech people, all the geeky maker people that are like me must be out in Silicon Valley. And so that's what he went to go do. He was like, oh, I should just leave and go there. And in fact, it turned out like of the, I think it was something like university, the university there in Philadelphia actually measured how many people stuck around and it was something like 20% back then. And because everyone just left, they couldn't find their people. And uh, the job falls through. So he turns around and he says, you know, I really love Philly. I should give it another shot. And he goes person by person trying to figure out how to go to more networking events and find people like him. And this one thing changed for him. And it, I think says that in order for us to find our community, we first have to signal really clearly who we are. Uh, and in order for us to find them. And so he changes from wearing suits like Fala's wearing right now um, and uh, shows up at his first event in an ironic t-shirt and a flannel sweatshirt <laughs> and rolled up so his tats are showing. And he actually, and this is really deeply uncomfortable because he's always been sort of taught how to be appropriate yep. and how to show up at these networking events a certain way. And so he shows up as himself and he's looking and scanning the room one by one, trying to figure out who might be a geeky maker type person. And slowly but surely he finds them, goes out to beer, finds the next guy, goes out to more beers, ends up hanging out every Friday morning in coffee shops and inviting people to come code together. Because at some point they're now descending like locusts at a coffee shop. They actually need a place to work the start of what is now called Indie Hall, one of the best and, and yep. top co-working spaces in Philadelphia. And so the, the thing is like, here's this thing that he could have said, doesn't matter, I belong here, myself in my community. And yet because he started to signal his interests and seek people out, he found other people who were looking for the 
And so this, this thing turned out to be an unmet need, an unmet marketplace need for a bunch of people. And but he, until he started acting on it, that would ultimately start to create that community around. I think that's instructive for a lot of us because how many of us look around and go, so it must not be that important or it must be over there. Instead of just really holding that and the thing. Right, right. Uh, Neil, we had another uh, Thinkers 50 winner, Whitney Johnson, on our show. And she talked about when you're disrupting yourself, business, it can be lonely, it can be scary. Um, that's when you know you're on the right path in terms of disruption. But she also talked about the importance of having a mentor and more importantly, a sponsor, someone who's willing to put their political capital um, on, on, on supporting your ideas, your vision, your career growth. When you talk about belonging, what are your thoughts about the importance of having a mentor or a sponsor in business as you're trying to introduce new ideas that can be scary and uncomfortable for, for, for an organization? Well, it depends on who that person is. I, I, I'm not sure, Vala, if you got a chance to read the story about the guy that I thought was a sponsor. And I show up at his office asking him for help to title what was then my second book. Um, and he said to me, now remember, I'm asking him to title my book. So this seems like a pretty obvious question. I sent him stuff about what the book is. Help, you're good at marketing, help. And he said, absolutely, I will totally be able to help you meet me here. And this is the very first thing he said. So here I am sort of leaning in, right, and thinking this guy's gonna help me. And he said, as a brown woman, your chances of being seen in the world are next to nothing. Because in order for your ideas to be seen, you'd need to be edgier. And yet if you're edgier, your management tribe will basically um, you know, not accept you. And in his logic, as he sat there, and by the way, he repeated the story then. So your chances of being seen in the world are next to nothing. And, um, and so that person was looking at me through the lens of an ism, right? They were looking at my otherness, meaning in the management category, most people don't show up with operating experience. They mostly have Ivy League degrees. Um, they mostly don't work on practical options. They certainly don't look and feel like me, um, so on, right? And so what he was noticing was all my otherness instead of my onlyness. And this is the big shift. So I'm cool with every kind of sponsor in the world as long as they're actually noticing the things that matter to the person. And I think where we get stuck is when sponsors try to shove us into a box and make us less than who we actually are. You know, we get that a lot. And I'm sure uh, your story is very, a lot of folks have had that story and it's good that you brought it up. Hey, you actually talk about some failures and also why failures occur. And I think that, that's what makes this book very powerful. Why did the Occupy Wall Street movement fail? You had some very interesting insights and analysis there. Yeah, so thank you for picking that up, Ray. I did um, 20 really positive stories and then I did essentially 10 negative stories. Because sometimes <laughs> it's, helpful, it's helpful to see the contrary of something to kind of yes. appreciate the positive. And um, Occupy Wall Street did this thing where they said, you know, we're, we're gonna point out a problem and we're gonna solve it. And what they actually did was made, and I actually counted up 1,060 uh, things that were broken about the world and said, this is the master list. And I'm like, yeah, that's unactionable. And so <laughs> the thing that I think all of us can do is to pick one thing uh, that we, and then we know who can be the decision maker or party that we can influence in that way, and then ask people to gather around with us to help move that ball down the field. And it's when we can isolate down to one thing and a specific party and a specific action, it allows us to start going from the you know 20 yard line to the 10 yard line and then ultimately towards the win. I think sometimes we're trying to do the, like let's get all the way from the 90 yard line over and, and that's insane. And uh, so we're not being specific enough in order for us to be actionable. And remember I have 25 years of operating experience so I come from this perspective of, yeah, anyone who hands me that list probably is never gonna get anywhere. <laughs> What advice can you share? We have startup founders, Fortune uh, 500 executives that have been on the show in terms of how they can, in, the, in that high position of leadership, tap into their power of onlyness only, or, or even single contributors who are aspiring to, to get to uh, you know, a bigger and better place in their career. Well, I think the biggest paradigm we have is we're, for ourselves as well as for others is we're often looking for the person who is qualified. And we'll say, does that person have the right experience? Do they have, they worked with the right brands? I remember uh, many years ago, 
and Twitter was probably like two or three years old by then somebody had shown me a job description looking for someone who was really strong at social media and in the job description it said 10 years of experience social media was how old <laughs> I know, exactly. it was like maybe three four years old like realistically right mm -hmm. and so I laughed out loud just like you guys did because it was so funny you're like yeah this is an old model that we're using to look at new things and quite often that's what we're doing right we're looking at does someone have the right degree does someone have the right experience the right age the whatever and I actually think the big shift of onlyness is to do what Apple did when they changed the mobile marketplace Originally, back then, and I'm old enough to remember these, mobile platform providers actually chose two or three apps to be what they called on deck. And they were you know, going through and it cost a million dollars, $2 million to develop and probably just about as much in terms of sales and marketing development. And then they picked and that was it. And Apple came along and said, what if we change this from us deciding and being in control to letting the marketplace of ideas participate more and we'll see all sorts of crazy things. And uh, they changed the cost of development from million, million and a half to 10,000. And of course, Google dropped it to 500. And then it let thousands start to bear and the marketplace of ideas started to weed that out. What if we did the same thing as leaders for ourselves as well as our people and said, instead of me having to pick, how about I figure out how to create a playground in the teams I build to say, who has passion? Who's interested in this? And the question I used to do when I was working for corporate clients was I used to say, who here wants to play? So here's the problem we're trying to solve. Who here, anywhere in the business, regardless of your title, regardless of where you're in the organization, who wants to come and play? And that used to be the way in which we'd open the door to allow lots of innovation to come in. Awesome. You know, now one part that lots of folks reading the book will probably ask is, how do you find this trade-off between individuality and conformity? Because we struggle as, as people as being part of teams and being only uh, on our own. Um, how does that work? Yeah, so this was actually probably my biggest lesson when I was going through and researching the book is to understand when are you, when is all self-expression allowed? Sort of, you know, is it all just everyone gets to count or where's the hook point? And it turns out, it, the, the analogy I ended up using in the book was a lot of us want to belong like we belong to our gym. Mm -hmm. Like we pay the money, we show up, it's on our terms and we, and we want the right to do whatever the heck we want to do. And then to the degree that we don't show up, whatever, it's our problem. And, and we have to change that, right? We have to belong in community, which means we have to be willing to be changed by that community. And we're starting to create that, that dove point that says, why am I here? What it is I add and what is we're connected by? So what is that shared framework, that shared purpose that lets me say, I'm on this team. And that might mean I shave off some percentage of this idea that I think is really unusual in order for us to carry that idea down the field better. My uh, final question is about uh, mentoring and mentorship and, and you know, who has influenced your, uh, your career and your, your thinking. And as I ask the question, I think about one of my favorite HBR blogs that you wrote where you grew a business at Apple from 2 million to 180 million in about like 16 months and you yeah. walk into a meeting and you think, I'm, I'm queen of the world, and Steve Jobs teaches you a lesson about growth, even though you had exponential growth in such short time. So I'm guessing he had some influence in your, in your, in your, in your thinking, <laughs> but who are your mentors? <laughs> well, you know, my, my actual passion is to figure out who can teach me anything. So Vala, I learned so much from you when I follow you on Twitter, because I find you really culling out, here are the ideas that matter. And then I learned, then I also follow the people that you help me find, right? So I, I think one of the greatest gifts you can actually give yourself is not to look for one or two or three people, but to go, what is it that Ray can teach me? What is it Bala can teach me? What is it that Nilofer can teach me? And figure out how to really pay more attention to what is that person's gifts and abilities? What do they care about? How might I actually start to learn from them? And that becomes, you become a sponge in your life and notice, notice what someone's not also good at, right? Sometimes that can be a good way to learn. Uh, but I'll tell you, one of, one of the favorite parts of my career has been um, having people challenge me and say, um, you know, here's what, what needs to be done. Will you raise your hand? And then standing with me while I figured it out instead of saying, gosh, you're not ready. So I really appreciate those leaders in my life. Terrific. Terrific. This is awesome. We're here with Nilifer Merchant, author of The Power of Onlyness. You can follow her on Twitter at N-I-L-O-F-E-R, one of the top thinkers, 50 thinkers in the world, and of course, one of the top TED Talks uh, in the world, if you remember, where sitting is the new smoking. <laughs> so thanks a lot for being on the show.
Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Paula. Very, very cool, um, man. She's Deep. amazing. She is the James Bond of innovation, and her books are awesome. Her blogs are terrific. And um, and read that blog with where you know Steve Jobs and her, uh, you know, went head to head in terms of uh, you know how to grow the company, and that was awesome. So speaking of awesome, um, our second guest, which I had a privilege to meet in person in Toronto uh, a couple months ago, and man, this guy is a mix of I don't know a hacker, a design thinker, uh, another James Bond, like maybe more like a Vin Diesel character when it comes to coming into big companies and just shaking things and making magic happen. Sean Mandel, he's vice president of Telus Digital and digital services team, driving digital strategy for customer facing web properties and so much more in both consumer and business segments for Telus. So again, I walked into this big high rise and expecting like corporate environment. Next thing I know, I felt like I was at a Silicon Valley startup. His team is responsible for delivering a best in class online experience that accelerates Telus's competitive advantage, delivers on customer first commitments and goal of becoming the most recommended company globally. As part of the team's digital transformation, Sean's leading the complete redesign of telus.com, business.telus.com using lean startup principles. It was awesome to see these like hackathon-like events at, his, at, at Telus and generating ongoing customer feedback on bringing uh, an industry-leading consumer experience to Telus. He is another terrific uh, person to follow for both blogs, videos, and, and social. You can follow him on Twitter at SMBUNK9. Welcome, Sean, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Vala. Good to be here. And I should definitely rewrite that intro. I feel like it's about five years old now. So <laughs> you, you, you just, mo you just motiv made it, motivated me to rewrite my bio. So thank you, sir, for that. We're now in digital time. So, so Sean, hey, look, what is Telus Digital Labs? Tell people how you make things awesome. I mean, that's like the, that's like the tag for you. You like guys. that? Yeah, actually, we're going through some rebranding right now. Um, Telus Digital Labs is an interesting riddle. Um, you know, I had the great honor of joining Telus probably about nine years ago uh, to realize our HSPA network, an iPhone launch, which is a really, really big deal for um, a wireless company that was operating on a different technology standard. And about five years ago, I got a great opportunity to lead what was then called the, the web channel. And, you know, the organization, just like others, and I'm probably not the only digital officer who has these challenges, is that the organization doesn't really understand the role of digital. Um, and so, you know, the team historically bounced between sales departments, marketing departments, um, you know, back into the call center team. And, you know, uh, the, the leader of the organization at the time pulled digital out and said, digital's far more strategic than any one of those things. Digital's not just about apps and websites and social. Digital's a, a massive vehicle for disruption around how we do things. And as you notice, a lot of organizations have a very strong what a very strong why, but struggle with how to deliver value um, in this modern age. And so the idea of Telus Digital and the digital labs was, you know, how can we do something dramatically different? Um, you know, and I got a lot, I got really inspired by the startup community. I got really inspired by the lean startup movement. And, you know, and, and even though it's quite obvious to think about being an entrepreneur inside of a large organization, um, the reality was what would happen if we created a startup inside of a large telco, and I'm talking large, we're 47,000 people. You're huge. Um, you know, and, 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 and you know, how do you do that in a way that's visible? How do you do that in a way where you create uh, empowerment through autonomy? Um, and we essentially took a training room on the fifth floor in this building in Toronto. Um, it had a really good view of the city. It was probably about 40 by 40. And we ran an experiment and we put 20 people in this room uh, friends from our IT department, uh, a bunch of team members from the digital team or the web team, and a few partners that were going to help us, you know, embrace design thinking and help us embrace, you know, different ways to deliver value to customers. And to be honest with you, there wasn't really a plan B because we were so convinced that this would work. And what was 20 people in a room January 2013 is now 305 people um, four, four years later. And let's just say um, it's been quite the wild ride. And uh, we've had lots of great successes. We've done some great stuff. And we've also uh, failed a ton. And the, the failures definitely outweigh um, the wins. But the team has grown. We now power um, digital tools for team members. We power digital tools for call center reps and, and, and retail team members. And obviously, uh, providing tools to our customers. And we're rapidly trying to transform a 100-year-old telephone company.
That's unbelievable. Easier Ray, than I was, at, no, I was at Thomas with Sean, probably like 5.30 in the afternoon. And I'm telling you, it was like New York Stock Exchange floor. <laughs> I mean, big walls, people were drawing. There were like debates and discussions. They were looking at the ranking of their mobile apps, not happy because they got like a 4.9 out of 5. You know, so he really drives a pretty, uh, pretty amazing shop. But it was, it was, it was buzzing. Now, okay, so you're in the most educated country in the world. 55% of Canadian adults have uh, college degrees. Uh, most connected, 90% on, on, on the internet. In the U.S., only 87%. 81% have smart devices, so computers in their pockets. So you have a very demanding ecosystem that you got to Yeah, absolutely. So as a chief digital officer, what is your, how does your role differ from a traditional CIO and CMO? And how did you go from 20 to 305 in a big company and have that success you had in, in frankly, a new title? You know, chief digital isn't as well known as a CMO, CIO, CTO, and yet you're doing it. Oh, lots there, Valley. Let's let's break that apart. Um, it let's just say this stuff's not easy, right? I gave a talk probably a couple of years ago with with Brandt and the guys that moved the needle, and we talked a lot about how difficult it is. And I think what you saw, Valo, was very much the the culmination of years worth of work. And I would actually argue sustaining this stuff is just as harder, maybe even harder than actually getting here. You know, having we have so we have about 20, I think almost 22 delivery teams running at any one time. They're constantly pushing product into production and making sure that they're following their rituals. They're doing their standups. They're doing their showcases. And a lot of the rituals and things that you saw on the floor that day um, is, is a very difficult thing to maintain and sustain. And, um, you know, that's taken a lot of work and a lot of effort. And I, a lot of testament to the leadership team on my end that I'm surrounded by. I have some amazing people that are trying to make a really, really big difference. Um, and it's inspiring, to be honest with you, um, to see it every day. Um, you asked an interesting question about kind of role of CIO, role of CMO, and we talk about this quite a bit. And we talk about how, and the, the role of digital largely varies in different organizations. The core tenants are the same, but the role does vary depending on a various set of circumstances. But we talk about how our team sits where marketing operations ends and where IT begins. And, and for us, um, what's unique about what TELUS Digital has done is not only are we doing all the research, ethnography, design, we're also de developing, deploying, and we also manage our own infrastructure. So we manage the entire application end to end. So the best way to think about TELUS Digital is actually a full-fledged digital agency, if you will, all the way from ideas to DevOps embedded within the telco. And we sit between marketing operations because my director of analytics and the team that runs data science, analytics, and insights also powers the marketing cloud for the company. So all the ad tech, all the martech sits in that team. So when you think about marketing and those marketing or those traditional marketing activities now shifting digital, there's really tight interlock between our organization and obviously the CMO team. And then on the downstream side into IT, we obviously partner very, very closely. A lot of the, the humans you might have seen on the floor valid that day were from our IT team because we're very big believers in partnerships and embracing kind of the, the type of collaboration that needs to be get to be done. You see a lot of different organizations investing in incubators, startups, these types of things. And a lot of them sit um, very external to the organization. And a lot of them, to be honest with you, have become kind of corporate PR exercises. And we've made very, very, you know, thoughtful decisions around we're going to be embedded. We're going to be wide open so everybody can see it. And the only way to win in this digital game is to partner. Like if, if, if anybody thinks that digital is about one team owning digital, um, you know, you're in for a big surprise because to be honest with you, our, our job is to manage ourselves to a relevancy and push digital skills and push digital capabilities deep back into the organization. Because if we don't do that well, we're, we're not going to win this game. And the game we're playing is it, we're in a constant battle to, uh, for the customer. Right. And you asked me before this, this ever moving benchmark we're competing against, you know, we're not competing against um, you know, the traditional telcos, you're not competing against Bell and Rogers or AT&T, Verizon or whatever market you're in. I'm competing against Airbnb and I'm competing against Etsy and we're competing against all these great Canadian startups and all these companies are delivering amazing experiences. Uh, and they're also in a maniacal battle for talent. Um, and, and we like to talk about how where digital sits is we sit uh, at TELUS in this interesting intersection between startup and big business. And if you want the best of startup and the best of big business, 
uh, you know, we're open, we're open, right? Like we have great opportunities for people. You know, you actually raised a really good point. Lots of interesting startups in Toronto, uh, yeah. in the GTA. Tell me what is hot. Like when you're thinking about partnerships, oh, because the co-innovation, co-creation that's going on and you're at Mars, you're at all these other interesting places. Tell us what's happening. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's realized that Toronto's actually like the third biggest city in North America now. We're bigger than Chicago. And there's something very, very interesting happening in Toronto. And a lot of it started with some of, um, you know, obviously corporates are innovating. We're seeing a lot of innovation happening in the public sector. But our startup scene is blowing up. Um, and, and, and I think one of the big booms behind how our startup scene is blowing up is that Toronto is actually becoming or positioning itself to be the AI capital of the world. So Jeffrey Hinton, the Vector Institute, the University of Toronto, uh, there's a bunch of really interesting stuff happening um, around artificial intelligence and machine learning and how Toronto is actually positioning itself to be, you know, the epicenter of all of that. And it obviously helps with some of the interesting political climate going on in the U.S. is that it's creating a great influx of talent that, you know, Canadian companies are not naive to and, and we're jumping at that opportunity, right? No. Yeah, over a hundred million dollar investments in the Vector Institute and Element uh, Element AI is a great poster child as a Canadian startup. It's got the largest Series A funding round in Canadian history so recently. So you know, it, it's time to kind of pay notice. There's actually, if you go to elevatetoronto.com. Uh, there's a series of us in the tech community pulling together a conference uh, around the International Film Festival and I think the second or third week of September. And, you know, it's time for Toronto to rise up and, you know, to stop being so kind of humble around our successes and start, you know, amplifying what's happening in the city more and more because there, it's only just started um, and there's great things to come. You know, I spoke to the director of AI at Waterloo uh, and... He said, unfortunately, 80% of the graduates who are studying AI are going to Silicon Valley because the salaries and the packages are just extraordinary. You know, you're, you're talking deep six-figure salaries for one-year graduates right out of Waterloo and University of Toronto. I mean, some of the best and brightest minds. And they've been hired from, you know, from the Salesforce of the world to Google to Apple to Twitter. So, yeah, it's, I, it's, I think it's great to keep Toronto at the epicenter and your shop going from 20 to 300, investing in AI talent is how you're gonna keep some of the best and brightest and, and, and I can tell us, as well as companies like Accenture and there's a whole community of Fortune 250 and startups that are gonna invest in making sure Toronto takes that run as being, as you said, the epicenter of AI. So I heard you use words like rituals and I know you empower your teams because I saw it in action. But tell me, what's the secret sauce in terms of maintaining that you know, tech star, Y Combinator, however you want to call it, that incredible energy in a now a very large organization of 300 where people still feel that they were empowered to make decisions, make mistakes, learn from them like they did when there were 20 of you guys. And now you're a, you're, you're a big agency. <laughs> so what's the secret? Yeah. What do you do it? How do you, how do you uh, the, do it? The, the secret is to stay small. Um, and, and you know, you know, one of the things we've learned through others is to keep as you get break, break it down again and become small again. And, and, and one of the things that we deployed, I, I would say, I want to say November 2015. So we're arriving on two years now is we were very inspired by Spotify and how Spotify organized themselves around this idea of, um, you know, tribes with squads and guilds and how that enabled autonomy how it enabled information sharing, but also how it allowed us to break down what got too big and make it small again. And so for us, along with that, you have a lot of lessons learned. When, you, when you're at this almost five years, um, you know, you kind of have those moments where you kind of go wide and you narrow, and then you go wide and you narrow again. And I'd say that we've had a few runs at that. And, 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 and why that leads to empowerment is because you kind of figure out where the guardrails are. And you kind of figure out where the rule system or the governance needs to lie. And, and the long story short, to be honest with you, is autonomy is a really, really, really important thing. But if you read the dictionary definition of autonomy, it actually implies there's a set of rules in place or a, a charter of rights and freedoms and some sort of guidelines in place. And I think we've done a good job over the last series of years, whether it's design or tech or analytics or what we do with our people practices, we've given the team enough autonomy to feel empowered to use the tools and make decisions. But at the same time, we put the right guardrails on place to ensure that things don't get too out of control where we're going so so wide that you know it results in utter chaos so but a lot of that's only done through experience 
Um, and a lot of our, you know, successes have literally come out of the dozens and dozens of failures that we've experienced. And we celebrate those failures. And, you know, that's an important thing to talk about because, you know, I still work with lots of different groups within this organization. And obviously I'm preaching to a lot of other people who are out there who have similar challenges around how do you create an environment and a team that embraces failure and isn't afraid to, you know, stand up and talk about the things that matter most. So, um, you know, um, you know, that's an important thing to think about uh, as I get disrupted in the room. Um, <laughs> that was funny. I tried to work my way through. I couldn't do it. But that's an important thing to think about, you know, at your culture, your rituals. All of these things lead back to that right environment. And without governance, you're not going to be successful being autonomous. You know, you're talking you about as, something. You, you as a player coach, are you um, finding it difficult to find time to get yourself in the mix because i know you want to be in the mix that that's you know it's it's uh it's how you inspire people yeah we've structured ourselves in a way where my outcome owner so we're structured by outcomes and enablement and so we have a, a whole bunch of people who just worry about making life easy for our team so that our team can make life easy for our customer awesome. and it's very very specific and thorough in that thought process. And so I spend, I have outcome owners that are very much attached to the business, to the PLTs and to the gentlemen and the ladies that run the business lines of the company. I spend my time under the hood, my, my objective. And I, I get far more fascinated about the things you don't see than the things you see. Um, and I'm really optimizing our machine. Like I'm very much focused on becoming a, a, an optimization machine and literally becoming, um, you know, an expert at our craft. And that's far more sexy to me than sitting in meetings all day, worrying about project launches, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, actually, you touched upon something really interesting. You sound like you've addressed one of the toughest challenges we see in transformation, which is concept to commercialization, right? Getting that thing from POC into the hands of a PL owner. And we typically talk about multimodal approach. And you just said something that was interesting about you know making things easy for your business owners. We've we've noticed that the that it's a hard thing to do. What do you do to help get something commercialized? What's the hardest part and how do you enable that? I'm just going to walk over and charge this phone so it doesn't break on me. But long story short, gentlemen, I meet, I meet people all the time. I meet partners. I meet vendors. I meet prospective team members who want to join our team. And, you know, all of them share a very similar thing in common. And that thing they share in common is three things. Everybody wants to make an impact. They want to have an impact. They want to, you know, get back to their community. They want to, um, you know, work with a bunch of great people. They want to work in a culture that means something. Um, you know, so that's kind of one. Number two is uh, people want to, you know, you know, deliver solutions that impact millions of people and have an impact on many, many lives. I'm not talking tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. We're talking millions. Um, and then the last piece is they want to ship product. And, you know, it, it's, it's it, I've talked to so many people who lose their mind because they've worked on this like beautiful document that collects dust on someone's desk and it drives them nuts. Yep. And so if you want to ship product, you want to have impact and work in a great team and a great culture and you want to impact millions of people. Like that's what we're trying to do. And I think the fact that we own kind of that end to end process and kind of have created a bit of an organization that allows you to deploy product. It's a huge win for us. And so we're shipping all the time. We're shipping, I would say probably up to 400 changes a day into production. Um, and that's only just starting and we're going to keep moving and moving and moving. And God knows it'll probably be thousands over the next months and years. But that's the goal is you join the team on day one, you you're a developer, you're shipping a piece of code in production. You're a data scientist or an optimization specialist. I want you to work with our segmentation tools and deploy a campaign on day one. And that's the type of culture we're trying to create. And it's not easy. It all of this stuff sounds great and wow, look at us running this like lean and agile environment. Let me tell you, this stuff's not for the faint of heart, man. And you really got to lean in because, um, you know, let's just say, um, you know, lots of failure comes with your success. Wow. Measurable, data-driven. We are talking to Sean Mandel, Vice wow. President of TELUS Digital. Thanks for being on the show. You can follow him at Twitter at S-M-B-U-N-K-9. So really appreciate having you here. Thank you, guys. It was great. Ray, we got to get Sean back. I can talk yeah. to Sean about digital business transformation all day. All yeah, day. For a while. You know, I got lots of stuff. But enjoy. Have a great weekend. Thanks, everybody. Well, check out our conference. We got to bring you out at some point. So take yeah. care. One of the brightest chief digital officers that I know. And he's doing big work. And it's complex work. And, and he's getting outcomes that every business would love to have. And 
And so, uh, you know, a lot, a lot to learn there. People are dropping a lot of science on us. And speaking of dropping science on us, Ray, this is what we call up, we call the cleanup hitter spot, where we bring our final guest, and you know, we typically see the guests get a grand slam. <laughs> so, no, no, no pressure. <laughs> who better? Who better to drop science than someone at at, at a major university? <laughs> yes, we have Ashutosh Nananwar, Assistant Vice President, Relationship Management and Data Science at University of Southern California, and. Um, the university will be open uh, in, in next week, so uh, we're going to have lots of busy work. As the author of Tableau Data Visualization Cookbook, Ashutosh is one of the few analytic professionals in higher education industry who has developed analytic solutions for all stages of the student life cycle. I saw him keynote at an event uh, in Colorado uh, a few, uh, few, few months ago, and just an extraordinary thought leader. Um, Ashutosh enjoys speaking to technical and non-technical audiences about the power of data, as well as ranting about data professionals who chase after interesting things. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm a victim of that. <laughs> He's leading data science, reporting, relationship management uh, efforts at USC. You can follow him at, at N underscore A-S-H-U-T-O-S-H. Welcome to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Wawa. Thank you, Ray, for having me on the show. I'm so proud of the fact that my introduction was probably the shortest of all the other speakers. So I <laughs> saved you some time and some breath. So I'm happy about that. No problem. Hey, Ashutosh, this is awesome. You are doing some really cool stuff in relationship management and data sciences. Tell us about your role at USC. Like, how did this get created? How did this get started? Because this isn't something that normally, you know, this, this is not a normal defined major that started up. So it sounds like you put something together here. So Yeah. Uh, well, USC is a special place. I mean, USC has been uh, ra rising in the ranks in terms of academics, but it also has been rising in terms of its fundraising. Uh, its most ambitious goal to raise $6 billion. Uh, we reached that goal actually one year shorter of the deadline, which was six years, but we raised that much money in five years. So USC always they had- kept, the, They kept the campaign going too, even after yes. you hit the goal. <laughs> yes, that's right, that's right. And once you have the momentum, we want to see, okay, what impact can we really create out of this? And USC has been doing tremendous things, not only in academics, but just generally bringing the neighborhood up to the standards, bringing all the high school kids, giving them opportunities. So USC has been doing terrific things. But what they also saw is other universities are trying to model, is trying to really see what technology can do in this space. Can technology really help us? So Salesforce, adopting Salesforce was one of those decisions and saying, okay, we are really going to use Salesforce for our fundraising. No other university had tried that before. So they were they really took chance upon that. And they had this attitude, the leadership had this attitude that, okay, we are gonna make this work. And we know it had delivered results for all these for-profits. We are going to try to do the same for our industry. And that's where the whole process began. And they knew that data and data science are going to be useful tools to help us get there. So that's where the role was created. And I, I got on board to help us with that. What are some of the hot technology trends? Uh, you just mentioned using a CRM platform in higher ed. Uh, what, are the, what are the technologies um, are you investigating, researching? in order to improve student success and faculty administration overall experience? Yeah. Well, I think the challenge has been, just like how all the for-profit industries are doing, the challenge has been that we are gravitating towards easier problems. And one of the easier problems is acquisition. So just like any other company, a lot of higher education administration folks are investing into marketing automation, trying to learn mm -hmm. insights about their prospective students and trying to say, okay, can we get the enrollment up high? Same thing with fundraising. Can we get uh, new donors in? And I think those are important problems, but those are not the only problems that we should be trying to solve. I think more is really, really about relationship management. How can we add value? How can we make that student experience richer? Because it almost is like once you get them in, we tend to forget about them. I mean, I was so surprised to hear in 2010, University of Michigan was still using mainframe to store their data, and yet they were raising crazy amount of money every year. 
So just to think about that, uh, that irony that here we are producing all the cutting edge work, but it's not coming back to the administration. That's kind of a problem. So the trends in this space I really see is how are we going to add more value? Can we really use AI to create uh, these uh, learning opportunities for students, creating customized uh, curricula for them can they can we use this massive online courses really to benefit their learning similarly to donors can we acquire donors through their interests rather than we always trying to find these donors and trying to cultivate them and trying to bring them to the organization but let them experience somehow creating these virtual portals where they can experience what impact they can make now, what's really interesting about what you're doing is you are, I mean, you're doing everything from helping folks with the data to actually figure out which donors to go after, um, to figuring out how to build an overall analytics program. Um, tell us a little bit about how you use analytics and fundraising and bringing that together. Yeah, definitely. So the, as, as we spoke just a couple of minutes ago, the easiest problem to solve really is acquisition. Can we find those new big major donors? I mean, to think of it, the problem is the, the principle holds true again, the 80-20 or 90-10 or 95-5 or 90-1, one percent of donors are bringing the majority of the money. So if you look at from an analytics problem, it's a tough problem to solve. I mean, how do you really, it's such an unbalanced problem. How do you find those prospects? But I think where AI can really help us is in social network analysis. If I am able to find out that Ray knows Walla and Walla knows Ray, and both have these big communities that they can get us through, get our name through and get our causes out there, they can really help us get uh, uh, big donations and big gifts in to create that impact. So I think social network analysis and for finding those gatekeepers, influencers through machine learning and through natural language processing are going to be the key in the next few years. I mean, you got some interesting stats. I mean, you had something 500 people donated a million or more. Five people gave over 100 million and you got a $200 million donation from Larry Ellison. I mean, yeah. that's huge. I mean, who right. found that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of these things you really cannot take credit for. Some, some of these things are really built upon relationships and no matter how much we would like to say that AI is going to change all these things, it's, it's a tough nut to crack and how do we really, uh, find what emotions are people triggered by and what what makes people give those are some hard questions we had uh, cio of oral roberts on our show michael matthews and he talked about uh use of wearable technologies to deliver insights to students to keep them on track so they developed an algorithm to to measure the likelihood of finishing a course with good grades and as as they collect data to, 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 that indicates a student is going in the wrong direction, they inform the student in real time on a daily basis. We also had uh, Chief Digital Officer of um, University of Texas, um, uh, Phil Kramani, and he talked about implementing blockchain for a persistent progressive student profile using ChainScript. And so Internet of Things and wearables, blockchain, and now you're referencing using machine learning to improve engagement on social. Um, we just launched last week um, uh, Einstein Vision, which, which is able to look at a Twitter feed and identify images. So if there is someone who's sharing uh, a photo of themselves and they have a USC sweatshirt, but they don't tag USC, it's just an image, hmm. you're now able to detect certain images based on you know, the pattern recognition algorithms that you develop and now engage the person in terms of perhaps new gear or so now we're looking at vision technology, deep learning capabilities embedded in social. There's also discussions about blockchain reinventing social in a more trusted uh, manner. Do you believe AI is going to be the most important uh, mega technology in terms of transforming education or is it the combination of all of the things I mentioned and, and perhaps even more? Yeah, I think one thing that uh, Sean earlier mentioned is uh, what I firmly believe in is if we create all these beautiful products and beautiful analysis and it just sits on the desk of someone and nobody takes any action on it, it's all wasted. 100% of that analysis is wasted. So not only do we have to keep working on this, uh, building all these products using AI, blockchain, or the new internet of things or whatever that may be, 
we have to equally work on our marketing. And if you read this book, uh, I'm sure you have read it before, The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. In every chapter, the author says that the, the battle is not about the product. The battle is about the perception. And we take immense pride in saying as, as analysts that, oh, I have built this beautiful predictive model that can predict with 98% accuracy. Nobody cares. People care, is it going to add any value? Is it going to improve my business? And I think that's where the total quality ma management concept of Muda is so useful, that if it's not going to add any value into the customer at the end, it's all wasted effort. So we have to actively work on communication and figure out what are those technologies that are going to really help and bring all the administrators. I mean, I'm, I was reading some surveys. It's amazing that 40 to 50% of administrators in education say that they don't have good data to drive their decisions, which is just shocking that they cannot even make simple decisions. So I think we have to start small also. And that's what I think uh, I was at the Salesforce Summit uh, last year just to see that power of democratizing the solutions. I mean, right now, all the systems that we have are so archaic that you cannot, there are these data silos, you cannot see what's going on, on the other side of the campus. But we have to start there, give the data to everybody so that they can start making decisions. But at the same time, having someone like a CIO or some chief analytics officer who's working with all these different units, different administrative functions, and uh, showing the value of that data. I think that's where it's going to be. You know, one of the biggest, one of those biggest challenges for donors, especially in higher ed, has been getting to what we call the, uh, the mid-level donor. Uh, and lots of folks talk about this mid-level donor crisis. What do you guys do in terms of uh, going after them and helping them feel like they were valued? Because most of the tailored messages are for the big million dollar campaigns or six-figure campaigns that are going on. Yeah. I think that's where the uh, you'll you'll see all these new vendors who are filling in that gap. So companies like Quadrangle, Gravity, or Uprising Tech, they are trying to fill that gap because you cannot scale those activities. If you want to make someone feel special, you have to give that time, and you cannot scale that activity. But we can definitely spend some technology and figure out ways to customize those messages. So if I see Johns Hopkins in the background, I should be able to send you Johns Hopkins relevant messages, whether it's medicine, public policy, <laughs> or uh, vinyl mixing or EDM, I should be able to pick that hey, up. Hey, 67% of your donors were non-USC non alumni. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're, exactly. obviously, you're obviously doing something here. You know, so. Right. And I think that's, the, that's true with all the prestigious institutions because they're not necessarily driven by, oh, this is where I got my degree. So all my affiliation and all my inclination is towards that institution. Prestigious institutions like Harvard, Stanford, Caltech, USC, they have been bringing all this money from non-alumni population. So the, again, it's the thing is, can we give them messages that they can relate to? And if can we use technology to really scale that? I think that's, the, that's where all these new vendors are going to fill in the space. And we are also trying to use Salesforce to do some of that. I'm amazed. I live probably 10 miles from the university where I spent six years, uh, four undergrad, two years grad. And um, I would argue I'm probably one of the above average in terms of social usage <laughs> and, uh, and digital footprint, just tiny bit above average. Yet I have received zero, zero <laughs> correspondence from my university. And um, after and I'm <laughs> uh, if we ask, come and speak to our students, I would do it. I'm 10 miles away. So anyway, universities have a long way to go because even people that have a strong digital footprint and are accessible, um, they're not being reached. And uh, I, so anyway, I completely I'm, agree. Yeah, I guess I'm not alone. There. So, so you're not yeah, alone. Yeah. So you wrote, you wrote a book a couple of years ago about data visualization. I'm guessing a lot of things have changed since the book came out. Maybe not. What are some of the things that have changed that you wish you had perhaps included in your book uh, if you were to write one today? Yeah, I think the format of the book didn't lend itself to explore more thoughts. It was more of a cookbook. How do you solve a problem? Yeah. I think if I were to add uh, something to it right now, I would really, really emphasize on, again, marketing. How do you market your concepts? And second would be critical thinking. Because visualization is cool. You can create all these great looking visualizations, again, infographics and all these interesting things, all these icons and 3D charts and whatnot. But if you're not applying your critical thinking and saying, what is this for? 
am I solving the problem that's worth solving? Or I'm just spending all this time on these useless issues. I think, and again, I mean, fake news is a big thing, right? I mean, how do we know what's what's real and what's not? And if AI can, I mean, Google recently invested, or was it Amazon? They invested like $400,000 or something into uh, creating journalism. So creating all these articles based on AI. So if that starts happening, how do we know what's actually true and what's not? So AI might take our jobs, all of our jobs, but they cannot take right now, at least uh, our critical thinking skills. So if we can focus on that, developing those skill sets, I think that would be the biggest differentiator one person can have. Well, on Disrupt TV, I'll be the first to be replaced by a robot. Ray, <laughs> it will take decades. <laughs> no, I, I, I think, I think I, you, this could be the bot. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh. well, that's no, a beautiful no, no. smile on a bot. I don't know how maybe that happened. <laughs> Thanks. Man. So, but hey, you know, you know that book on data visualization was awesome, right? I mean, it, it's a book, it's a cookbook on on basically data visualization tools using Tableau. You're probably a ninja on the back end, um, but but when you think about it, this is also very hard, right? Especially for the work that you're doing with AI and data science, especially when you're thinking about advancement uh, in in universities. Um, are universities getting more quantified? like putting more quant into this as opposed to going with, oh, who's got the best Rolodex? Like, what are you doing to bring on folks? I mean, you guys doubled the number of advancement officers. Mm -hmm. I mean, you went from like 200 folks to like 450 folks in like, like basically, I mean, three years in the middle of a campaign to raise money. I mean, do you hire for something different? Are they quant jocks in the background? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I wish we had that kind of trend. I was speaking with some Tableau folks, their marketing folks, and the way they use Salesforce and the way they use Tableau, it's amazing because almost everybody has a lead. They have to act on that lead within three days. Otherwise, they get a call from the manager and say, hey, what are, what are you doing with this lead? Why is it still sunsetting? I wish we had more like more things like those where we were so data driven and uh, so metrics driven we are trying to get to that place though i mean that's where this whole data science is coming in picture is can we really say a fundraiser is effective can we really say what mm. traits can we find those traits that makes a fundraiser effective and then can we really start to hire based upon those but we have also invested into learning and growth so we started uh, uh, informally of a, a center called fundraising institute where we are actually teaching fundraisers these skills so the hope is that we actually make it uh, open for everybody and then maybe we can recruit from that population whoever joins that ashutosh has a has a uh, has a topological data analysis on attributes for fundraiser success so <laughs> so we'll be kicking out there on this so awesome we have ashutosh nan Nandeshwar, he is the Assistant Vice President of Relationship Management and Data Scientist at the University of South Southern California, known as USC for most. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at N underscore A-S-H-U-T-O-S-H -S -S uh, if you want to get deep on data visualization, higher ed, advancement, and fundraising. So thanks a lot for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. Have a good weekend, everybody. You were terrific. Come back. Come back for sure. AI and, and, and data science, big topic for us. We'd love to have you back. All right, sounds good, Walla. Take care. Awesome. Take care. Wow, that's the fastest hour on Fridays anywhere in the world. You're on Disrupt <laughs> TV. It's episode 75. Who do we have for next week? We, we, do you realize we've interviewed about 185 extraordinary, extraordinary trailblazers and change agents? Oh, my gosh. And, uh, you know, as I keep hearing our guests talk about their books, I'm telling you, there's a book here with almost 200 extraordinary people. My brain is fried right now after talking to Neil Farron and uh, Ashtosh and, and Sean. Okay, so next week, episode 76, you know, we're trying to create more theme-oriented shows as we go. Um, obviously, we've got lots of interest in people coming on the show, and we're delighted for that. Um, but we're going to try to work as hard as we can to create themes. Next week's theme is around Internet of Things. So we've talked about some of the most important technologies that will impact every business, every industry, and certainly IoT is one of them. So we're going to start with John Eisen, CEO of Blue Cedar. He'll talk about yep. the trends that you're seeing. He is seeing. We'll, start, uh, we'll, we'll then trans, uh, transition to Macy Kranz, author and vice president of Corporate Strategic Innovation Group at Cisco. If you had to think about 10 companies that are going to lead the IoT revolution, certainly I would argue Cisco would be amongst them, maybe even five companies. 
And then we'll end with Courtney Borland, freelance reporter for IoT Institute at Informa. So if you're interested in Internet of Things, next week you're going to have an hour of amazing, rich content where we'll talk about real use cases, real market trends, and it's an opportunity for you to learn about a significant, very important technology that will shape all of our futures. If it's Friday, Disrupt TV. Rafe, closing remarks? <laughs> Not at all, man. Happy Friday, everyone. And uh, we're getting close to the end of summer, so we're going to see some more interesting things. And uh, we may have a fun Disrupt TV event in November So with Constellation Research. So hold November 1st in Boston is, is the hint. So talk to you guys later. Mm -hmm.